This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Isn't this room attractive? But take away the mirror and you can see the difference. Not only does the high-fidelity mirror make the room more attractive, you get the most accurate image possible. True line and color. In the winter of 1962, a boy named George punched his best friend David in the face. To be fair, David kind of deserved it. They were fighting over the same thing that most 15-year-old boys fight about. A girl. Both lusted after Carol Goldsmith, a classmate at Bromley Tech in the suburbs of London. George had been the first to muster the courage and ask her out. Then David called and broke the news. She changed her mind. The date was off. Trouble was, it wasn't true. David made the whole thing up. Carol waited for over an hour before storming off, devastated that she'd been stood up. David planned to swoop in and pick up the pieces of her broken heart, but George got wind of his so-called friend's deceit. So they had a showdown at recess. Okay, maybe showdown is too strong. George marched up to David and socked him. The blow struck David's left eye, landing at just the right angle to do maximum damage. He was rushed to the hospital, where doctors attended to his bleeding eyeball. The injury nearly blinded him. He recovered at home for weeks. Isolated from his friends at school, this sci-fi reading, Americana-worshipping, unusually self-possessed jazz freak, fashion plate, and budding Buddhist from the British sticks felt like even more of an outsider than usual. And now he looked it. In the mirror, he saw a permanent reminder of the teenage tussle. The muscle that constricted his iris was paralyzed, leaving David with a permanently dilated left pupil. The effect made his eyes appear as two different colors, one blue and the other black. Looking in the mirror, David wasn't so sure about this new reflection he saw staring back at him. In fact, he was kind of embarrassed. Sure, there was the perfectly coiffed Presley pompadour, delicate, almost feminine cheekbones, and sly elfin grin, but his mismatched eyes looked 
weird. Though not necessarily in a bad way. Maybe it's kind of cool. He was marked. It gave him a kind of mystique, an aura of otherness, and lent a hypnotic, mesmerizing edge to his ice-cool stare. We can work with this, he thought. Maybe, just maybe, weird is good. For the first time, David Jones, a young student from Bromley, gazed into the eyes of David Bowie, a rock star from outer space. For the most visually conscious musician of his era, Bowie's eyes would become his defining feature, peering out of album covers, magazine spreads, and music videos. Over the years, the face that stared back at him in the mirror would change radically. He was Major Tom, he was Ziggy Stardust, he was Aladdin Sane or the Thin White Duke. But those otherworldly eyes remained constant. The duality was striking. One eye steely blue and strong, constantly scanning the horizon for what's to come. The other black and moody, damaged, looking inward at the equally dark places in his soul. The two perspectives formed a singular creative vision, which led him to fame, fortune, and immortality. In mythology, blindness is equated with mystical powers, like the oracles who can see beyond the realm of mere mortals. Regardless of any supernatural abilities, Bowie's eyes were a crucial part of his own mythology, providing him with his very own superhero origin story. Some believed his eyes were the result of a gangland street fight. Others cited it as proof that Bowie really was from Mars. The truth of the matter, that he was trying to steal his best friend's date, was best kept quiet. Getting back to David and George, they patched things up and stayed friends. In later years, David thanked him for the whack. Without it, he wouldn't have his trademark feature. So all in all, it's a happy ending. But this is just the beginning. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life, or should we say lives, of David Bowie. In this episode, we're going to talk about David Jones, the Brixton kid with ruthless determination who paved the way for all that was to come. He's the boy who would be Bowie. The soul we know as David Bowie crash-landed at 40 Stansfield Road in Brixton, England on January 8, 1947. Born to Haywood Jones, called John by his friends, and Margaret Burns, known to all as Peggy, the child was christened David Robert Haywood Jones. The midwife who delivered baby David was struck by his knowing eyes. This child has been on this earth before, she insisted, according to his mother at least. But, well, let's just say dramatic flair runs in the family. The rumors of David's extraterrestrial origins may be overstated, but the Joneses' neighborhood really did look like another planet, a cold, sooty, and bleak one. Brixton still bore the scars of Nazi bombing raids from World War II, which had ended less than two years earlier. The rubble-strewn streets were pockmarked with bomb sites, barren craters where homes and sometimes whole blocks had once stood. Long after the war was over, essential goods were still in short supply. Items like eggs, sugar, and linen were strictly rationed. Even beef and soap were considered luxuries. Lack of coal and gasoline meant homes could only use five hours of electricity a day. Street lamps were switched off, making the bombed-out pits seem all the more ominous and foreboding. For David's early years, his world was dark, damp, and vaguely dangerous. Dystopia was just another day. Life inside the Joneses' three-story Victorian terrace house wasn't much sunnier. David never had fond memories of his childhood. He recalled his family as cold and emotionally distant. There were not a lot of hugs shared at 40 Stansfield Road, though he desperately wanted one. In later years, when asked about his relationship with his parents, David quoted Philip Larkin's poem, This Be the Verse. 
Here's the opening stanza, edited slightly for polite company. They mess you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. He got along reasonably well with his father, John, a quiet man who had show business dreams of his own when he was younger. At one time, he ran a nightclub and spent much of his own money developing his first wife's cabaret act. The act failed almost immediately, and their marriage followed suit when John met Peggy. They were unmarried when Dave was born, a bold move in 1940s Britain. The boy was eight months old when they unbastardized him by tying the knot. Employed as a public relations director at a children's orphanage, John retained some of his huckster tendencies. Over the years, Dave would borrow many pages from his publicity playbook. His relationship with his mother was more strained. David characterized Peggy as a frigid, critical, monosyllabic woman who rarely smiled. Outward displays of affection were totally out of the question. Whatever emotions she had stayed locked deep inside of her. David would say she gave him the bare essentials to keep him alive, but never kissed him. Once, during a minor disagreement, young David admitted to his mother, You know, I think you hate me. The suspicion lingered into adulthood. All his life he yearned for her approval, and he never got it. When she died in 2002, a friend offered his condolences before adding, You know, your mother never quite took to me. David responded, Trouble is, she never quite took to me either. The only consistent source of love and affection for David was his half-brother Terry, Peggy's son from a prior relationship. Though 11 years older, the two grew close as they shared a cramped bedroom. Terry became David's best friend, protector, and hero. Terry doted on his little brother, offering badly needed kindness and emotional support. When David started painting, Terry offered praise and encouragement. Their mother just complained about the mess. But Terry's paternity made him an unwelcome presence in the house. John never fully accepted him, and Peggy viewed him as an unhappy reminder of an earlier life. David watched as his beloved half-brother, his idol, was treated like half a member of the family, a second-class citizen in his own home. Unwilling to take any more abuse, Terry enlisted in the Royal Air Force in 1956, when David was just nine years old. He returned from combat a few years later a broken man, disheveled, angry, irrational, frequently upset. Though no one knew it at the time, he was displaying early symptoms of the mental illness that would cost him his life. Madness. That's what it was called then. David had another phrase for it, emotional and spiritual mutilation. He always feared it because it always seemed so dangerously close. It blazed through his mother's side like a wildfire, consuming the vibrant lives it touched. Two of Peggy's sisters were institutionalized with schizophrenia, while a third was diagnosed as manic-depressive and lobotomized. Peggy's own severe personality may have hinted at some undiagnosed condition. Now Terry, David's closest friend and confidant, was falling prey to this cruel family affliction. Would David be next? David remained haunted throughout his life by what he dubbed Peggy's Curse. As a star, he cited his art as a psychological outlet, crediting it for whatever sanity he'd been able to maintain. Armchair psychologists have theorized that the characters David inhabited in his music weren't mere theatrics, but something deeper. An attempt at staving off mental illness with a custom-made, compartmentalized psyche. The true source of David's chameleonic compulsions will never be known, but it's interesting to note that one of his all-time favorite books was called The Divided Self. In his seminal study on schizophrenia, renowned psychologist R.D. Lang defines insanity as, quote, a perfectly rational adjustment to an insane world. To a kid caught in the maelstrom of post-war deprivation, a confusing home life, and mental illness, these words were a revelation. 
The secrets and psychodrama of the Jones household set young David apart from the kids he knew in Brixton. Sometimes it was a good thing. Sure, he was alienated and adrift, but it also made him feel special and independent. Head in the clouds or nose in a book, he often wandered off, walking aimlessly. He's remembered as a sweet, bright, well-behaved, well-dressed, well-scrubbed boy. The kind of kid any mother would be proud of. Except perhaps his own. He could also be painfully shy. On his first day of primary school, just down the street from his parents' house, he was so overcome with nerves that he wet his pants. Music was a release for the buttoned-up little boy. David displayed an ear for it early on, one of the more positive traits passed on from his mother. Peggy frequently sang around the house, and even wrote poetry. As a toddler, David flung himself wildly around the kitchen whenever he heard a piece of music that he liked. These spontaneous outbursts were out of character for such a mild-mannered child. His parents would joke, maybe he'll grow up to be a ballet dancer. But when David stole the show in a primary school nativity production, they began to take real notice. After all, this is a long way from peeing his pants. Soon David began performing little shows at home, using a windowsill as a stage. His mother, predictably, was not amused, but John Jones loved it. He was the consummate stage father. In David, he saw the chance to live out his own unfulfilled showbiz ambitions, for which he had neither the talent nor the temperament. As part of his job as an orphanage PR director, John regularly hired celebrities for fundraisers, and he was not shy about pushing his cute little boy up front for a quick meet and greet. He'd tell his famous guests, my son's gonna be an entertainer too. David would nod his head in agreement before thrusting out his autograph book. Through his father, David learned how to maneuver among celebrities, presenting himself with maximum impact. At one event, he broke away from his parents and marched right up to fellow attendees Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. A photographer was on hand to capture the moment that the bemused, newly crowned queen greeted the future Ziggy Stardust. David would later claim the shot was published on the front page of a local newspaper, but sadly no evidence of this photo has ever come to light. Whether he actually made his media debut alongside royalty, or simply embellished the story later on, is up for debate. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So let's take stock for a moment. You have an alienated kid with a passion for music, a predilection for theatrics, a preoccupation with multiple personalities, and a precocious knack for self-promotion. What's left in the David Bowie recipe? Science fiction. He caught the bug early. In 1953, when David was six, the BBC began broadcasting the Quartermass Experiment, a pioneering and kind of trashy sci-fi series. It became a phenomenon across Britain, an early example of must-see TV. John and Peggy, perhaps correctly, decided that this material was not suitable for children. So David snuck downstairs after bedtime and hid behind the couch while his parents watched. The program made an enormous impression on David. It offered a glimpse of life unlike anything he'd ever known. More importantly, it reminded him that the universe was more than just the four walls of his unhappy home. As the show promised, on the other side of the air, there was a whole new world out there. The widespread popularity of the Quartermass experiment wasn't lost on David either. The public imagination had been captured by a blend of aliens and sex. Hmm. File that one away for later. It's fitting that around the same time the Quatermass experiment hit the airwaves, the Jones family moved to Bromley, hometown of sci-fi writer H.G. Wells, the so-called man who invented tomorrow. But this British suburb was about as far as you could get from Wells' progressive, futurist ideals. The town was just as bland as Brixton. Pleasant enough, but even more boring. The word grey comes to mind. Grey streets lined with grey prefab houses and grey rubble from the odd bomb site. The atmosphere in their four-room house at Plainstow Grove was just as tense as ever, and David's parents fought regularly. John was very much in love with Peggy, but she regarded their marriage as one of convenience, and would freely tell him as much. So John passed his unspent affection along to David. Their father's son time often involved trips into London to visit the theater. David would wait for just the right moment to make a break from his seat and slip backstage, where he soaked up all the action. Stagehands here, costumers there, set designers and lighting crew. A whole army worked to get things looking perfect. This was deeply inspiring for David and ignited an all-consuming interest in presentation, an art form of its own. David frequently looked in the mirror. Most self-conscious kids do, but for David it was about more than just checking his hair. This fundamentally shy boy hoped the mirror could provide some answers. He yearned to know who he was, and also who he could be with some minor alterations. Tilt of the head, purse of the lip, maybe a whole new wardrobe. He even made a list of his flaws in an effort to weed them out of his personality altogether. The act of transformation fascinated him early on. When he was three, his mother found him staring transfixed in the bathroom mirror as he smothered his face with women's makeup. It was like a magic act. Now you see me, now you don't. 
His mother was less than pleased. You don't wear makeup. David didn't understand. But you do, Mommy. An exacerbated Peggy finally screamed, That is not for little boys. Fans of Freud will have a field day with that. Not for boys, he probably thought. We'll see about that. Aside from the bickering, there were two constant sounds at Playstout Grove. The small town talk from the pub directly outside David's bedroom window and the whistles from a nearby train station, a taunting reminder that a bigger world with bigger minds existed elsewhere. Today, suburb is practically a dirty word, conjuring up stultifying images of banality, little boxes on the hillside that all look just the same. But for middle-class Brits in the mid-50s, a detached home in the suburbs was the ultimate brass ring, the peak of aspiration. And who could blame them? Many had survived two devastating world wars in their lifetime. They weren't necessarily looking to expand their mind or make their creative mark on the world. Mostly, they were just grateful to be alive. As the economy sluggishly began to improve, the mass exodus from city to country reverberated like a massive social sigh of relief. There was peace. And there was faith that things would keep getting better. Modern material comforts and conveniences eased the pressure of daily business. Life was predictable and routine. To adults, this meant safety and security. To kids who'd never known any different, it was tedious and suffocating. The physical and psychological proximity of the neighbors led to rigid self-policing. Don't go too outside the box, otherwise people will talk. For David, this often took the form of his mother's voice. Pull up your socks. Don't touch that. Have you washed your face? The suburbs would shape David and many other artists of his generation by providing a paradigm to rebel against, something to push back on with such force that it altered the trajectory of their lives. He would describe Bromley as a wasteland caught between provincial country values and the decay of the city. If he was going to find himself, it was pretty obvious he wouldn't find it here. While revisiting his childhood home as a superstar in the 90s, David started to break down in tears. It's a miracle, he choked. I probably should have been an accountant. I don't know how this all happened. Literally and metaphorically, he escaped through music. A constant on the Jones family turntable was a song called The Inchworm. Over the years, it's been covered by the likes of John Coltrane, Tony Bennett, and even Paul McCartney. But for six-year-old David, the definitive version remains the original, sung by comedian Danny Kaye in the film biopic of fairy tale author Hans Christian Andersen. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigold. It's a melancholic meditation on the fleeting nature of happiness. Danny Kaye's melody is offset by a chorus of young students, blissfully unaware of the trials that await them just around the corner in adulthood. The song became David's spiritual soundtrack. As a boy, it gave voice to the sorrow he couldn't yet verbalize. Inchworm is my childhood, he said in 1993. It gave me comfort. The person singing it sounded like he'd been hurt too, and I'm into that, the artist singing away his pain. When David first started making music of his own as a teenager, Inchworm would be the first song he'd learn to play. He would return to it again and again over the years. It kept him connected with those feelings of sadness that filled his soul as a child. Echoes can be heard in some of David's best-known work, from melodic fragments in Life on Mars and Aladdin Sane to thematic elements of Ashes to Ashes and Thursday's Child. He'd cop to it in later years. You wouldn't believe the amount of songs that have spun off of that one song he once said. There's a connection that can be made between being a somewhat lost five-year-old who feels a little abandoned and having the same feeling when you're in your 20s. It was that song that did it for me. 
But soon there'd be another song that would take on equal importance in David's life. If the inchworm was the agony, this one was the ecstasy. One day in the autumn of 1956, David's dad came home from work with a gift. An American GI had donated a stack of records to the orphanage, and John borrowed a few for his music-loving son to hear. David was drawn to one right away. Tutti Fruity? What kind of title is that? He stuck it on the turntable and dropped the needle. Then his whole life changed. It all started with those magic words, a wop bop a loo a wop bam boom This was the first time David heard the spine-tingling caterwaul of Little Richard, whose unholy howl could wake the dead and compel them to dance. That voice, coupled with his unrelenting barrel house boogie-woogie piano, the result was powerful, naughty, sexy, funny, and electrifying. David later said of the moment, my heart nearly burst with excitement. I'd never heard anything even resembling this. It filled the room with energy and color and outrageous defiance. I had heard God. He got the chance to see God later that year in the early rock flick, The Girl Can't Help It. The film starts off in black and white before exploding in a vibrant widescreen technicolor. That's pretty much what happened to David's world. Sure, he'd heard Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, widely and inaccurately cited as the first rock and roll track. He'd also heard the folky twang of Lonnie Donegan, the man who touched off a craze of teenage do-it-yourself skipple bands. But Tutti Fruity was in a different universe. It's impossible to overestimate the impact Little Richard had on Little David. His flamboyant sharkskin suits and campy stage moves never diminished the raw power that captured any audience. With his high cheekbones, higher hair, and thick lashings of mascara, he was almost androgynous. His lyrics alluded to sex with the knowing wink of a cabaret comic, but his shrieks were pure, unspeakable, orgasmic delight. Little Richard was wild, outrageous, subversive, and very, very weird. And he was loved. Most parents hated rock and roll, but David's father was his best supplier of these exciting sounds. John Jones continued to receive a steady flow of new releases at work, which he'd then bring home to his son. David's collection quickly expanded to include discs by Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, Fats Domino, and Gene Vincent. And of course, there was Elvis Presley, the hip-swiveling former trucker from Tupelo who'd taken the raw black sound to mainstream white audiences. David liked Elvis just fine. Hell, they even shared a birthday. He had the moves, he had the style, he had the outlook, but there was no mystery. His music spelled everything out. Who knew what a wop bop a wop a wop bam boom meant? It was like a secret or a spell. For David, the Georgia peach would remain his idol. When Little Richard toured England a short time later, David somehow scored tickets. The chance to see his hero in the flesh was just too good to pass up. He got choice seats way up front. Richard burst onto the stage, larger than life, and strode atop his white baby grand piano. David was ecstatic. But then Richard started groaning and grabbing his chest. David was worried. Something was clearly wrong. Richard fell down onto the stage, microphone by his side. David was terrified. Little Richard was dying in front of him. A voice came over the loudspeaker. Is there a doctor in the house? Then Little Richard lifted his head and shouted. You guessed it. A wop bop luop, a wop bam boom. The effect was electrifying. It was as if he'd raised the dead. From that point on, David's goal was clear. Somehow, some way, he would be Little Richard.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's easy to spot the future rock star in the 1962 Bromley Technical School class photo. Amid the rows and rows of tweens and ties and identical blazers, young David Jones makes an impression, adding a dash of color to the black and white panorama. He's a nonconformist and a portrait of conformity. His classmates stand rigidly at attention, many as if they're posing at gunpoint. David has turned oh so casually to the right, the better to show off his good side, he told his friends. His shock of bright blonde hair is piled high in what the kids call the D.A. or duck's ass style. He stares down the camera with a moody, almost seductive pout, worthy of James Dean and Marlena Dietrich. He's 15 years old, and he's ready for his close-up. The picture speaks volumes. David Jones was just one of those kids you noticed at Bromley Tech. Classmates described him as smart, funny, cheerful, and always willing to stop and chat with the younger kids. More than anything else, he's remembered as one seriously cool dude. As is so often the case with teenagers, it was the clothes that made the man. He jazzed up school uniforms with ultra-crisp shirts and pointy winkle-pinker shoes that were all the rage. He even had his regulation pants tapered skin-tight to match the looks he'd seen on the latest American album covers and magazine spreads. Outside of school, he cut a dashing and dapper figure, strolling down the suburban high streets in sleek suits paired with tasseled suede boots that nobody else had the guts to wear in public. 
David was rarely seen without his best friend, George Underwood. These guys were so tight, they assumed they had ESP powers and spent hours trying to guess the word the other was thinking of. They'd met in 1958 as members of the local Boy Scout troop. It was during one of these scout trips that they gave their first musical performance, playing old skiffle and folk songs like Cumberland Gap, Tom Dooley, and the Ballad of Davy Crockett around the campfire, backing themselves with a ukulele and washboard. Four years later, the pair were the biggest rock and roll nuts at Bromley Tech. Together they formed a group, George and the Dragons. When they weren't busy practicing their Everly Brothers harmonies, they were usually found on Bromley High Street, identically dressed and on the prowl for girls in hip Italian trousers, though not necessarily in that order. Though they didn't know it at the time, David and his friends would benefit from two government policies that would radically reshape adolescent life in England. The first was the end of mandatory military service, the dread of every healthy 17 to 21 year old male in the country. The threat of 18 months in the army hung like a dark cloud over every British boy, especially those of a more bohemian nature. For decades, the draft served as a rude welcome into adulthood, forcing boys to rapidly become men or something like that. But by the late 50s, it was over. A crucial period of youth was handed back to the post-war generation, and they were free to do with it as they liked. One option was to attend art college, a recent addition to the English academic system. Up until then, schools prepared students to either work in offices or factories. Art college offered an alternative. To many dreamy British youths, it was a revelation. You could make a living off your ideas. These innovative institutions helped set the stage for Britain's monumental contributions to music, movies, fashion, theater and publishing as the swinging 60s began to blossom. Art College alums include figures like John Lennon, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Ray Davies, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Sid Barrett, to name but a few. Bromley Tech, affiliated with the nearby Bromley College of Art, offered a liberal education within its modernist glass and concrete walls. At school, David found an important ally in Owen Frampton, the head of the art department. A successful graphic designer in his own right, Ozzy, as he was known, was the most beloved teacher at Bromley Tech. His enthusiasm for art of all kinds sparked passion in his students, and his care and kindness made the kids feel respected and valued. For David, Owen Frampton became a mentor, turning him on to artists like Egon Schiel and Eric Henkel. He instilled in David a sense of discipline and also nurtured his growing rebellious streak. He encouraged David and George's band and even allowed them to keep their guitars in his office during the day. At lunchtime, he'd leave the door unlocked so they could retrieve their instruments and practice in a concrete stairwell, where the natural echo made them sound like Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, or whatever rocker they were impersonating that day. Usually they were joined by Owen's son, a younger boy named Peter Frampton, an impressive guitarist who was equally besotted with the sound of U.S. radio. Rock and roll swept across gray, deprived post-war Britain like a second wave of American liberation, freeing the hearts, minds, and libidos of the young. To David and many others, the United States seemed like the promised land, a magical far-off place where everything was colorful and larger than life. It was the birthplace of pop culture, Superman, Coca-Cola, Frank Sinatra, Mickey Mouse, and hot dogs. America produced a ceaseless flood of stars, styles, and trends, and the U.S. economic boom made even everyday life seem impossibly glamorous. Big cars with big fins, big houses with big lawns, and big television sets with the biggest celebrities. For Brits, America seemed cooler, richer, and a hell of a lot more fun than anything they had. This America existed more on the mind than on the map, but that didn't matter. It helped British kids dream a bit bigger. And without that, we wouldn't have had Swinging London. Or for that matter, Ziggy Stardust. As a teen, David grew obsessed with all things American and did everything he could to copy the latest looks from across the ocean. Once, when visiting his local barber, 
he requested his hair be cut like the newly inaugurated President Kennedy's. He and George would adopt American accents when trying their luck with local girls. David even fell in love with American football. He would later say, I had America mania when I was a kid, but I loved all the things that America rejects. It was black music. It was the beatnik poets. It was all the stuff that I thought was the true rebellious and subversive side. An early role model was James Byron Dean, the doomed Hollywood heartthrob who cemented his reputation with just three movies before his fatal car wreck in 1955. He didn't live to see the full flourish of rock and roll, but he knew what it was all about. Dean was a fast-living, spiritually-searching hurricane of emotions capped off with raw sex appeal underscored by his delicately pretty, almost androgynous facial features. David especially liked Dean's performance in the adaptation of John Steinbeck's East of Eden. He related to Dean's character, Cal Trask, an emotionally tormented young man stranded in a small town, desperate for love but completely unsure how to ask for it. It reminded David of himself and his older half-brother, Terry. Terry's sense of isolation in the Jones family helped make him an enthusiastic disciple of the American beat poets. Tearing through the works of Allen Ginsberg, Gregory Corso, and William Burroughs, he shared their ethos of freedom and individuality with his eager young sibling. Through the beats, David began to explore Buddhism and meditation. For his history class, he wrote an essay condemning Chairman Mao's invasion of Tibet. Not exactly a run-of-the-mill topic for a Bromley Tech student to tackle. Through Terry, David received the kind of education he wasn't going to get in school. David later said, Terry introduced me to the outside things. He had shown me that there's always been a history of the outsider, of the rebel, of not being in the center and not being drawn into the tyranny of the mainstream. Then one fateful day, Terry passed David his copy of Jack Kerouac's On the Road. For David, it was like receiving holy scripture, and he would cite it as a defining moment in his adolescence. The dog-eared pages sent him on a speed-fueled cross-country adventure with renegades like Dean Moriarty and Sal Paradise, whose copious appetites for sex, drugs, and jazz took David the worlds he could scarcely imagine. If he couldn't get out of Bromley, then on the road was the next best thing. Before long, Terry was taking his brother David out of Bromley for real. This daring new literature had Terry hooked on free jazz, the untamed music favored by his beat heroes. Soon Terry was getting it live from the source, the dank and smoky music clubs in Soho, London's Bohemian Enclave. David frequently tagged along for these Saturday night excursions, taking the 45-minute train into London's Victoria Station, and then down the exit ramp in the frenetic urban oblivion. Two misfits, one older and taller, with his hair creeping past his collar. The other younger, barely 14, clad in a school uniform, out way past his bedtime in the epicenter of London's Pleasure District. After years of wartime austerity, London was becoming colorful again. In this case, it was the neon hues of the red light zone. Soho's clubland was strewn with strip joints and sex magazine emporiums, entertainment that flattered the rules of conventional society. This was as exciting a schoolboy David as the wild jazz they heard at the Flamingo, Brownie Scott's, and the 100 Club. When he and Terry weren't engaged in debates about left-bank philosophers like Sartre and Camus, they were discussing the merits of jazzers like Wes Montgomery and Jerry Mulligan. Sure, some of the weirder stuff like John Coltrane may have gone over David's head, but Terry's enthusiasm was enough to carry him through. These nights on the town stoked David's desire to make music of his own. It seemed like a natural expression of this new outsider consciousness. He'd later say, I wanted to be a musician because it seemed rebellious. It's what linked Little Richard with James Dean, Kerouac with Coltrane, and even the Tibetan monks. At heart, they're all rebels. 
Though David had messed around on the guitar and ukulele, he was drawn to the saxophone. If it was good enough for John Coltrane and Little Richard, he figured, it was good enough for him. His father John happily obliged, giving him a glamorous, Italian-designed, cream-colored Grafton model. It looked cool as hell, but he still needed someone to teach him how to play it. After scanning the music papers, he came up with the address of Ronnie Ross, a local jazz legend who played baritone sax alongside Woody Herman and other greats. Ronnie wasn't actually offering lessons, but David was fearless and called him up anyway. Hello, my name's David Jones, and my dad's helped me buy a new saxophone, and I need some lessons, he said breathlessly on the phone. I don't give lessons. I'm a jazz player, Ronnie said. But I really want to learn. (sighs) Well, what are you doing Saturday morning? Nothing? Well, if you can get yourself over here, I'll have a look at you. David caught the bus to Ronnie's house every Saturday morning for two months. But then his teenage enthusiasm wore off. No kid wants to work on the weekend, after all. Musically, he didn't learn very much, but Ronnie did impart a very important concept. Music is not about playing notes on a page. It's about creating a new language and communicating the visions in your mind without speaking them. This would prove to be a very valuable lesson for David, though he'd figure out the fingerings later. Instead of going to Ronnie's, David spent his Saturdays at Furlong's Records, Bromley's musical mecca, Entire weekends were spent perusing the aisles, looking for discs from eclectic jazz greats like Charlie Parker and Charles Mingus, and the latest R&B sounds from James Brown and Jackie Wilson, then unknown to most Brits. He even worked at Furlong's briefly, cementing his status as a local tastemaker among his fellow teens. But the job was short-lived. He spent most of the time trying to build up his own record collection rather than actually, you know, selling stuff. After his boss caught him chatting up customers one too many times, he got the axe. David knew firsthand that record stores were great places to pick up girls. One time while he was trawling the racks, a young shopkeeper's assistant took a liking to him. Together they'd cozy up in one of the listening booths, fogging up the windows to the sounds of Ray Charles. She was 17 and David was 13. My first older woman, he'd recall with pride. David was 10 when he felt his first sexual stirrings and devoted considerable energy to the attraction of local females. But when speaking to journalist Cameron Crowe in 1976, he claimed that his first sexual experience was with a boy, a pretty boy to use his words, that he took up to his childhood bedroom at age 14. He explained to Crowe, it didn't really matter who or what it was with as long as it was a sexual experience. But considering this was the same interview where he dubbed Hitler, quote, the first rock star, he may have just been going for shock value. Whatever the case, David's talent for seducing girls is well-documented. In 1960, around the same time he was steaming up the listening booth with the shopkeeper's assistant, David took a class trip to Spain. While most of the boys played soccer with the Spanish kids, David is best remembered chatting with the local girls. In a school newspaper article about the trip, he's reverently referred to as Don Jones, the lover, last seen pursued by 13 senoritas. Keenly aware of his powers of persuasion, he could be quite the lady killer. As an adult, David lamented what he called terrible behavior, which included swapping partners midway through a double date without getting permission from any of the parties involved. And then, of course, there's the whole Carol Goldsmith incident, which earned him a punch in the eye from George Underwood. They'd patched things up by the time George started playing with the Conrads, a local rock and roll outfit that had taken Bromley Tech by storm, or at least a light breeze. David desperately wanted to join, and he begged George to put in a good word. They eventually let him in, not as the front man, but as a humble sax player. I'm the singer, George assured him, but you can do a few numbers. 
Knowing an opportunity when he saw one, David agreed to be a sideman. He played his first gig with the Conrads at Bromley Tech's PTA Fair in June 1962. It was the social event of the season. The PTA even shelled out for a new sound system. This was big news. Some 4,000 kids and parents were on hand to watch David make his formal stage debut. Blasting out instrumentals on the cream-colored sax slung coolly over his shoulder. His towering blonde pompadour threatening to collapse as he bounced his head in time the covers by the shadows Little Richard and Sam Cooke. He didn't sing a note, but it didn't matter. David knew he had the crowd mesmerized, and he liked it. A lot. David needed a name for this confident new character that appeared when he performed, so at odds with his calm, cool, and somewhat shy daily demeanor. For a time, he was Dave J, which morphed into Luther J, and then Alexis J. He also briefly considered a flashier name, inspired by a hero of the Alamo called Jim Bowie. But that one didn't catch on. At least not yet. That name belonged to someone else, the man who would defy convention through his sound, style, and constant chameleonic reinvention. The man who would elevate rock concerts to the level of performance art. The man who gave the LGBTQ community a badly needed hero by openly embracing his fluid sexuality. The man who would struggle with drug abuse, pushing himself to the brink of sanity with a diet of cocaine, milk, and red peppers. The man who performed and partied with the likes of John Lennon, Freddie Mercury, Mick Jagger, Iggy Pop, and Lou Reed, and somehow lived to tell the tale. The man who endured the dissolution of his marriage on the front page of every tabloid. The man who indirectly helped bring down the Berlin Wall and predicted the creative potential of the internet. The man who channeled his impending death into one final masterpiece. We'll get to know that man very well over the course of this series, but David Bowie didn't exist back in June 1962. For now, he was David Jones, 15 years old and playing rock and roll on stage with his friends. As far as he was concerned, it couldn't get any better than this. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of Off the Record. Each Monday, we'll explore one of David Bowie's unique personas, from Major Tom and the Thin White Duke to Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, and beyond. In addition, we'll have weekly bonus episodes featuring interviews with major figures from that week's installment. First up, I talked to George Underwood, David's childhood best friend whose playground punch resulted in David's trademark extraterrestrial eyes. Despite the whack, the pair stayed close for the rest of David's life. If you want to get to know the boy who would be Bowie, George Underwood is a great place to start. I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks for listening. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Tytone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you- 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You ever get the feeling the city walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating your soul? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe chase some elk fish a private stream well listen up there's a whole world out there and finding your own piece of it just got easier head over to land.com they've got ranches forest mountains you name it search by acreage location the kind of hunting or fishing you dream of land.com it's where the adventure begins 